everybody once again to UConn 360, the only podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every possible angle. We're coming to you with our 14th episode from the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center on the Storrs campus. Thanks to our friends here for letting us have some fun here today. You surely have noticed by now, I hope, that I am not Tom Breen. I am Julie Bartuka, and our dear buddy Tom is on vacation. So for this week, and hopefully this week only, I will be your facilitator of sorts as we journey through our UConn Love Fest. I am joined, as always, by Ken Best. I am here behind the board. And don't you fret, because we have a very special guest who will be our substitute teacher, if you will, as we visit Tom's History Corner this week for an exciting peek into UConn days gone by. This is Graham Stinnett. Thanks for having me on. He's an archivist here at the Dodd Center who oversees the Human Rights and Alternative Press Collections at the UConn Library, Archives, and Special Collections. Uh, We have a great show for you, as always. We'll be talking to a professor about whether you can ever truly know yourself and an alum who seems to know herself pretty well and has turned her passions into her career. But first, let's get into some Husky headlines. Ken, what you got? The biggest news of the week that has made headlines and front pages across the state of Connecticut is that uh, Old Rocky Top will be heard once again. I don't know what that means. Old Rocky Top is the uh, theme song <laughs> for the University of Tennessee ah, Volunteers. Okay. Of course. The uh, women's basketball team will be playing Tennessee next year and the year after for the first time in 11 years. Wow, I didn't know it was that long. And uh, this is coming to us uh, through the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Made the announcement uh, earlier this week. UConn and, and Tennessee will be playing together at home and away, so they're going to visit each, each campus, uh, or probably, for our case, the, X, the uh, XL Center in Hartford. And the benefit for this will be the Pat Summit Foundation and the Hall of Fame. Uh, cool. Pat Summit, uh, the, the longtime championship coach of uh, Tennessee, died uh, from Alzheimer's disease in 2016. Between the two programs, there have been 19 NCAA championships, but we haven't played since 2007. Wow. So uh, this is going to be a good thing because in addition to the 19 championships, there have been 28 Olympians, 43 All-Americans, and 17 Women's Basketball Hall of Famers to come out of just these two programs. Uh, We, of course, have had the advantage in the last several years, which we don't mind. (laughs) But all the information's out there. If you go to the Women's Basketball website, you can start thinking about tickets for next year. Graham, what do you got going on? So normally, the archives and special collections are engaged in loaning some of our sort of rare special materials. Um, And we have a couple of shows that we want to talk a little bit about. The first one is at the William Benton Art Museum here on campus. It's called What's the Alternative? Art and Outrage of the 1960s Underground Press, which is a a collection that I oversee that's going to run from August 30th to October 14th in this fall semester. That was guest curated by um, Mr. Fish, who is a political illustrator who does a lot of uh, sort of radical artwork, political in nature. The other one that I wanted to pitch was at the Branford House at Avery Point Campus. That's also this fall. We will have on display um, materials from the U. Roberto Romano papers, photographs of child labor in coastal countries. So he documented predominantly child labor all around the world here in the United States as well. And that will run from September 13th to December 16th, mostly photographic work that uh, has not been seen by most folks. Wow. Very cool. Thanks, Graham. And I just wanted to draw your attention, listeners,
listeners to a new series that just launched on UConn today. One of our writers, Elena Hancock, has started a series of stories called Climate Change in Our Backyard. And there's already a number of stories up about the impacts of climate change we can see right here in Connecticut. And it really makes you realize it's not just icebergs melting or coral reefs dying off in some faraway land, but there's a lot going on here that is directly because of climate change. So uh, we're hoping to bring Lena onto the podcast to talk to her about those stories soon. But you can find that and more at today.uconn.edu. I am, in fact, preparing to do that. Awesome. Can't wait. All right. So Tom isn't here this week, and I really can't compete with his really great segues that he does. So I'm just going to ask Ken what he's got for us this week. According to legend, above the entrance to Apollo's Temple at Delphi in Greece, the words know thyself were carved into stone. Uh, For several years, our philosophy professor, uh, Mitchell S. Green, has led an online course titled Know Thyself, the Value and Limits of Self-Knowledge. He's been also teaching a MOOC course, which is a massive open online course, which is aimed at unlimited participation and open access on the web. And since he's been teaching that course, There have been more than 75,000 students from the ages of 15 to 85 in more than 100 countries participating in this class. He published a book earlier this year of the same name, and he started just recently to teach this class online again. I spoke with Professor Green about the philosophy of self-knowledge, wondering why, after thousands of years, why are we still trying to find ways to know ourselves? I'm not sure that every civilization, or even most civilizations, have taken the norm or injunction to achieve self-knowledge as being among the most important ones. I would say it's something more like it comes and goes. So it did have a cachet in Greece of 300, 400 BC. Whether it had anything like a similar cachet 200 years later, and whether it was something that had cultural importance in the at, at the heyday of Roman civilization is another question. Of course, some philosophers and others would have enjoined people to engage in a a search for self-knowledge, self-understanding. Others, perhaps not so much. And likewise, think about the Middle Ages. There is a case in which we don't get a whole lot of emphasis on knowing the self, rather we want to know God. And it was only really until Descartes came back on the scene that we began to get more of a focus on introspection and understanding ourselves by looking within and reasoning out. You point that as a turning point in Western Western philosophy. Exactly. A couple things then. One, for various reasons, cultural, political, economic, ideological, the norm of self-knowledge has kind of come and gone with the tides in various ways throughout human Western history. Even if we had been continuously enjoined to achieve self-knowledge for the 2,300 years since, since the time Socrates spoke and so forth, just as Freud said, said about civilization, saying civilization is constantly being created anew, that is, everybody who's born has to work their way up into being a civilized being, and it's a new project with every new baby. So, too, the project of achieving self-knowledge is a challenge for every single new member of our species, and no one can be given it at birth. It's an achievement. It's not something you get for free. So continuing to beat that drum, continuing to remind people of the importance of that, is something that I think we'll always be doing. I don't think there's ever going to be a point. I doubt, I'm doubtful there's ever, that there will ever be a point at which we can all say, yep, we're good on that. We've got that covered. We've got self-knowledge down. As you're going about daily life mm-hmm. and working and trying to earn a living mm-hmm. and raising a family and mm-hmm. whatever else you're doing, thinking ahead as the financial retirement planners would have mm-hmm. to right. think about well, should, you're supposed to know yourself well enough to know what your needs are sure, going to be then sure. and maybe want to be surfing That's right. at the end yeah. or create art or Absolutely. music when you have 
all of your time exactly to you. So, right. at what point should that thought of mm-hmm. getting to know yourself better mm-hmm. begin? I guess I wouldn't encourage a nine-year-old to engage in a whole lot of self-scrutiny, but in some ways, even when you're young, some of those indirect, especially self-distancing types of activities can actually be of value. So imagine a nine-year-old gets in a fight on the playground with another kid, a teacher asking them, given what you said to that other kid, the thing that provoked the fight, if you had had someone say that to you, how would you feel? That's a little inkling of self-knowledge, or at least a solicitation of it right there. For me, if not in the form of introspection, but in the form of developing empathetic skills, which I think are themselves a part of self-knowledge because they allow, us, allow me to see myself from another's, through another's eyes, that can't begin too early as far as I'm concerned. You know, in my experience, lots of people who are in or near retirement have this idea that, okay, they're just going to stop working and they're going to be really happy because you're going to relax, take it easy and so forth. And I find that again and again, that tends to crash and burn because so many people find so much fulfillment, rightly so, out of their work. I would urge people who are my age would do well to think about what is it that gives them satisfaction And granted, we spend a lot of time thinking about the various challenges that our jobs and so forth present to us, but in some ways, that frequent grumbling, the kind of hair pulling and stress and so forth, that might be part of what makes life fulfilling. Well, let me drill down even further. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're on a college campus with 20,000 undergraduates who are between the ages of 17 and probably 22. They're trying to learn more about themselves through what they're studying and they're making decisions on what they think they may want to do yeah. for the for the rest of their life. Right. Uh, is this an optimal time sure. in life to do that? Because you learn how to think a little yeah. bit better and more yeah. clearly when you're going through these processes. Yeah. Here. I consider one component of a liberal arts education to be that of the cultivation of self-knowledge. One philosopher of education once said that the university education is essentially the sustained cultivation of the self. So learning a lot of stuff is important. But in some ways, that's just filling. What matters is the cultivation of the self, and that includes, you know, if you want to cultivate yourself, you have to have some ideas to how you want it to grow, how you want it to develop, which requires some inkling of what you think you are and what you think you can be. And those are things that students can only try, can only do by sort of trying things and seeing what happens. And so for me, there's, it's not as if I have the idea that a freshman should come to college and plan in a sort of rigorous and lockstep way to learn about themselves and to cultivate themselves and to bring themselves into fruition as a fully formed uh, as, as a fully formed adult at, upon graduation at age 22 or 23. Rather, there's much more messiness, much more inherent kind of try things, doesn't work, throw it aside, try something else. Not all those who wander, not exactly, as it should be, not all those who wander are lost. So I'm all in favor of that. But I still, I, in spite of all that messiness and ambient kind of chaos, I would also say in the midst of that, there is potential for learning about yourself, taking note of, that didn't go well, what can I learn from that? That was really cool, I really enjoyed that, I'd like to build on that experience and do more of it. Those are all good. Those are all ways of both learning about yourself and, at the same time, constructing yourself. Mm-hmm. Those two things can go hand in hand. So the individual who would know themselves well, mm-hmm. what kind of person would that be? I would say it's got a number of different parts. There's no one essential pot of gold at the end of the rainbow kind of thing that's there. One of them certainly involves acknowledging your limitations, owning your limitations. Those limitations can be cognitive, my lousy memory, 
might tend to distort the information, my, tend to, my tendency to, to uh, sugarcoat information that I get about myself, for example. You know, take a professor's experience of reading student evaluations. It's easy to forget the negative ones and easy to remember the positive ones. And so knowing that I tend to do that, if that's what I tend to do, allows me to take a second look and say, ah, as painful as it might be, I better go look at some of the negative ones too. So acknowledging my limitations, am I overly critical? Do I tend to see the glasses overly half full or over, overly half empty? One of those things, those are all limitations of an, of an emotional kind that a person can be prone to. Self-knowledge certainly requires knowing if there are facts about me that are distinctive, I should take note of them and try to compensate for them when appropriate. So that's one thing. So, so knowing my, my tendencies to get into trouble either cognitively or effectively, and then thinking about ways to counteract them is of value. And then also, perhaps more positively, learning about the things that, that I do find valuable. And one of the challenges there is knowing how to separate the things that I genuinely find valuable from the things that I think I find valuable because someone told me to. And then I think I'd also say, knowing how to see things from another person's point of view is not guaranteed to, but I think often apt to allow me to see myself more effectively too. Then what would someone gain in self-knowledge mm-hmm. by listening to someone, appraising them and speaking to them about how well they knew them, asking yourself those questions but being told you are this way, you are that yeah. way. Uh, how, does, how does that dynamic help? It, first of all, it can help, but it can also be shocking. Uh, because the experiments have suggested that other people's assessment of an individual can often be very out of line with that person's self-assessment. And it's not clear that those other people's assessments are less accurate. In some some cases, they're more accurate, as determined by relatively well-established objective psychological assessments. Third personal assessments from other people can be both difficult to swallow, bitter medicine, and also extremely valuable. And because they're difficult to, 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 to swallow, they're, I would suggest, taking them in small doses <laughs> because it hurts. That's so why, you know, at the end of a semester, I encourage my teaching assistants to read about course evaluations, but don't try to read them all at once. And maybe if you, you know, can get something out of it, try to take one suggestion from those course evaluations that you can go into the next semester with as a thing to work on under teaching. All right. Interesting stuff. Ken? Do you know yourself? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Um, My segment this week focuses on someone who I think does know herself pretty well. Emily Abadi is a 2010 journalism and political science graduate, and she's carved a niche for herself in her career. Uh, She's actually a fitness journalist. She's currently a freelance writer traveling the world doing all sorts of cool stuff. Her Instagram is beautiful. And she's written for Shape Magazine, CafeMom.com, Rodale Wellness, and was the fitness editor at Self Magazine, which was a huge magazine. And she also hosts her own podcast. It's called Hurdle, where she talks to incredibly successful people about the obstacles they overcame to get where they are. Let's check it out. My name is Emily Abadi. I graduated from UConn in 2010 with a double major in journalism and political science. When I was at UConn, I was an editor at the Daily Campus at what once was called the Focus section, the entertainment lifestyle section. I also delivered the school newspaper three days a week, driving on all of those wide sidewalks that you're definitely not supposed to drive on. I was also in a sorority at the time, Kappa Kappa Gamma, which I know is no longer on campus. And what do you do now? I am now a freelance writer and editor living in New York City. Most recently, my last full-time job was at Self Magazine as the fitness editor there before the magazine folded. 
in the end of 2016. Since then, I've been running at this freelance thing, writing for everyone from Wall Street Journal and GQ to Pop Sugar, Self, Shape, the list goes on, really. It's been a wild ride, to say the least. And you're also a podcaster, kind of like us. Tell me about your new project. So my newest project is called Hurdle. It started uh, at the beginning of this year in January 2018. Hurdle is a podcast that talks to top CEOs and entrepreneurs who got through tough times, a hurdle of sorts, by leaning into wellness. And that can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. You know, for some, that's a fitness uh, journey, leaning into things like Muay Thai and running to get through what could be maybe alcoholism or uh, drastic bullying. Some of the guests that I've had on since January, everyone from Whitney and Danielle, uh, the founders of Saqqara Life, to uh, Michael Chernow, who is a restaurateur here in New York City. He opened the Meatball Shop, amazing. <laughs> Seymour is a sustainable seafood concept. Also, Fred Santerpia, the chief digital officer of Condé Nast, and then more greats to come today on the podcast. I launched one with Gunnar Peterson. He's a celebrity trainer, mm -hmm. well known for his work with the Kardashians, Bruce Willis, Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Lopez. So I've had some uh, really great conversations with some really impressive individuals. And you're impressive yourself. I'm impressed that you've been able to connect with all these people. That's amazing. Um, so I'm a lucky woman. Yeah. Well, you today when I looked up your podcast, I forgot it was hurdle for a second and I typed in hustle because that is what you do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you talk about in the first episode of your podcast, your own hurdle moment that you overcame. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? It actually happened for me at UConn. I call them on the podcast hurdle moment, hashtag hurdle moment. And for me, I was living uh, on the third floor of Hicks Hall in East Campus, and I'm working uh, in the spring of 2007 at my desk, and I look at my bunk bed, and under my bunk bed, there's a scale, and it probably hadn't been moved since <laughs> when I moved into campus, and I took the scale out from under my bed, knowing that I definitely had a weight issue that I didn't want to confront. I. Uh, I step on the scale and I remember it felt like an eternity for that thing to populate. And when I looked down and saw 204 pounds, my heart sank and I knew that I needed to make a change. And I did something that at the time was so not instinctual to me, which was throw on sweatpants and sneakers and a sweatshirt and run down the three flights of stairs out of the dorm, down the street, 15 seconds into my run, just so exhausted and so beside myself, tears streaming down my face. And I just knew that I needed to make a change uh, for the rest of my life. And you did, and you did really lean into that and you made it your career. It's funny, I, I graduated from UConn and, and having that double major, I definitely thought about being a lawyer, but I also thought about the lifestyle that I wanted and I knew I wanted to come to New York City. And so after a brief internship at the Hartford Current, I decided that I was gonna go to New York and be a journalist and so I got my first full-time job at a company a website called Cafe Mom working at their women's lifestyle blog, The Stir. The Stir uh, was definitely ahead of its time. We were publishing between 70 and 80 times a day. And at The Stir, I was writing all sorts of content from trending entertainment and news to health and fitness. After about three and a half years at The Stir, a company called Rodale, a publishing company which used to own titles like Men's Health, Women's Health, Runner's World, Prevention, Bicycling, they reached out to me having seen a lot of my health and fitness content on the stir, saying that it was quite apparent that I had a passion for that area and they had a website and they were really looking for someone to come in and grow. And so 
I was super hesitant about becoming like a niche journalist. I was scared to be uh, so health and fitness. I thought it would get really monotonous and it turned out to be uh, a decision that forever shaped my career into what it's kind of become. And uh, it was there when I became a certified personal trainer uh, while being an editor there. I wanted to be able to create authoritative, smart content and really be able to co-sign the advice that I was getting from top experts in the field, knowing like if they were gonna tell me to do three sets of 12 lunges with a weight that was 75 pounds, I'd be like, well, that's probably a little too heavy for most people. Maybe we should uh, talk about this in a way that feels more accessible. So I got certified to be a trainer and then that was kind of the waterfall. You have to, when you're a certified trainer, do a certain amount of continuing education credits as time goes on. So for me, I uh, ranked up those credits to become a run coach. I also, uh, for the past year, uh, was a spin instructor. And then um, my time at Rodale came to an end and I found myself at Self Magazine as their fitness editor. And that was certainly a pinch me moment, you know, as someone who was so hesitant to get into health and fitness journalism to then be at one of the top women's publications for health and fitness in the nation at the time, uh, running their fitness content, overseeing what we were telling the masses. That was a really wonderful, inspiring and beautiful time in my career. How did what you learned at UConn help you for what you're doing now? I would definitely say that uh, we talked a lot at UConn about the climate of the publishing industry and having to really know everything from print to newspaper to digital to social media. Uh, I think learning all of that there was super beneficial, but putting that into practice in the real world, it was in full effect. I mean, I really had to know everything, all of my bases. I was, you know, programming social media while writing blog posts, while doing a newsletter. I did everything all at once. And I think in, in the field today, they call those quote unquote predators. <laughs> I was an A-class predator doing absolutely everything at all the time. And uh, my experience at UConn definitely got me ready for what was to come. Do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs or people who want to go into freelance? Kind of, you've really, you've built your own brand in a way. What would you tell people who kind of want to do that? My first piece of advice would be that everyone at some point in their career should be their own boss. I think that I have learned so much about myself and my skill set from having to wake up every day and find my own money. It's one thing to be able to phone it in at a desk and not to say that the quality of your work won't be outstanding, but it's another thing when you wake up every day and you're like, what am I doing? Who am I working for? Where is it coming from? Let's get this done. So definitely I would say, uh, and, and also in that process, like you might learn that's not for you, but it will still be a really wonderful lesson. The second thing I would say, and this is a piece of advice that I got from one of my mentors, uh, Liz Glosser. She's currently the woman's health editor in chief. Uh, I would say she told me always take the meeting, uh, whether it's for a job or it's for a possible article or it's just to make a connection that will never be a waste of your time. I think the last thing I would say also is sit down with someone new every week. I think that was a goal that I made in 2018 um, and that's definitely been aided by creating this podcast, by creating Hurdle. But for me, everyone can teach you something and look at every person that you come into contact with as an opportunity, everyone can teach you something. And I truly think whether it's for five minutes or an hour, 
just learning about people, learning about their skill set, learning about what they do. I think there's so much value in that. So just always be open to to your surroundings and always take the meeting. What have you done to really put yourself out there? I mean, you've been interviewing these crazy top people. Obviously, <laughs> you've you've made a good impression. How do you do that? For me, uh, homing in on who my mentors are has really been the people that I feel like build me up. I always say surround yourself with faucets instead of drains. My two biggest mentors, um, as I mentioned, Liz Plosser is definitely one of them. Also Fred Santarpia, he's the chief digital officer at Condé Nast. And I make sure to check in with Fred probably once quarterly. And whether that's just finding coffee or finding time to talk on the phone, I know that their time is valuable. And so I really make it a point to, uh, if I need something quick, be quick and to the point, be, be, you know, upfront with what you need, but also always be conscious. And I think this is so important that you never know what someone's going through on the phone or via email when you reach out to them. So maybe like don't hit them over the head immediately with an ask. Do some sort of pulse check. How are you doing today? What's going on? By the way, I'd love uh, if you have a few minutes to help me with something I've been working on or to weigh in with your opinion on this. I think that's so important. So I'm very lucky with the mentors that I have. And also like just sending someone a note when you're thinking about them is important. And I think that's definitely helped me along the way, keeping and maintaining some of these great connections. Where can people find you? My website is eabody.com. That's A-B-B-A-T-E. I am at Emily Abadi on Instagram, also Emily Abadi on Twitter and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out Hurdle. It's at Hurdle Podcast. You can find the podcast in the iTunes store. Again, that's Hurdle Podcast, bit.ly slash Hurdle Podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, so now we all have to get in condition to yes. do the podcast. Yes. Otherwise, we sit with headphones on in a room and that's it. Yeah, we need to all be like Emily and start to get off our butts. Anyway, let's step into our time capsule or our VW van or whatever you picture getting into when we go to Tom's History Corner. And we're going to go with our special guest tour guide, Graham Stinnett from the Yukon Libraries, Archives and Special Collections. Graham. So uh, <laughs> this week, I decided to pull something from the President's Office Papers, largely based on the popularity of uh, a Netflix show called Wild Wild Country, if anyone has seen that. Um, the discussions of cults uh, from that <laughs> period, late 1970s, early 1980s. And few of you may know that there was a few functioning cults here on this campus. I did uh, not know that. Yes. <laughs> so um, starting from a letter, uh, November 3rd, 1979, uh, which was written by a Manchester Community College faculty member, um, Wallace Winchell, they had organized a speaking program, which included a former UConn student who had escaped from a cult known as The Way International. They had a student organization here on campus. Audience members included, quote, cultists from University of Connecticut who came to intimidate our speakers, end quote, he says. Another family spoke of the garbage eaters uh, who make a special target of UConn as their daughter, Melinda, a third-year nursing student at stores, had disappeared in May of 1978. Oh, my gosh. So the story of Melinda, um, basically, after being slowly extracted from the garbage eaters, as they were known uh, across the country which was led by a uh, former U.S. Marine, Jim Roberts, also known as Brother Evangelist. She was barely able to speak in full sentences, didn't eat for five days, and jumped from a third-floor window uh, oh and refused hospital treatment from that. She eventually then returned to the cult in May 1979. She apparently was, quote, bathing little and praying much. Three major cults that were kind of discussed in these papers at that time are The Way International, Unification Church, uh, also known as the Moonies Church, uh, by Rev. Reverend Sun Myung Moon, 
uh, and also the garbage eaters. So in this period, too, um, Jonestown Massacre happens in November of 1978. Uh, the Hare Krishnas are becoming very popular at that time as well. Krishnas were recruiting here on campus, too. Another one of those individuals who also had a letter uh, written in these president's files from John D. Biagio is March 1980, and it's the story of Brian, who was an urban economics major who met an attractive female student one day who invited him back to his dorm room, which was actually Beecher Hall, room 406, uh, if anybody wants to check that out, uh, to discuss a book uh, where, upon his arrival, 20 very inviting people were waiting for him. In one dorm room? Yes. <laughs> they hiding in the closet? Very friendly a little, people. A little crowded. Um, so he was spending all of his money on these classes that they would hold, which were called Power for Abundant Living classes. And he was tithing a lot for the group, um, as well as recruiting at UConn and, and at E.O. Smith. Um, it took up all of his time and money, so eventually after friends and family noticed his personality change uh, and his apparent speaking in tongues and brainwashing, he was extracted from the Way International. Speaking in tongues. Yes, and a lot of these groups kind of went under the guise of being Christian organizations. They would carry the Bible with them. They would dress very puritanically. A little bit deeper on, you would find something else uh, didn't uh, quite float. So um, one of the sort of instances of, of how the cults would sort of operate on the people, um, Brian says, the individual operation of thought reform techniques create and sustain a euphoric state, which, as my experience revealed, led the victimized students to abandon schoolwork, extracurricular activities, family, and indeed your entire past. So you can kind of just see where folks really started to get uh, entranced by this kind of stuff. Wrapped up in this. Totally. Yeah. So finally, just to circle back to uh, uh, our dear lost Melinda, the sort of last letter written in this folder, uh, which was written to the president again, September 2nd, 1981, her family begins to kind of go on speaking tours, actively coming to UConn, making sure that students know, like, what are you about to sign up for? And this is what could happen if you're, you're kind of not keeping your smarts about you. Uh, Melinda is still missing at this time. Um, however, the family is actively trying to smoke out these cult affiliates on campus, including one particular professor who, in the political science department here, was a speaker at the 10th International Conference on the Unity of Sciences. Sounds very bland, straightforward academic. It was in Seoul, South Korea, uh, which actually this conference was a front organization for the Unification Church of Reverend Sun Myung, Sun Myung Moon, also known as the Moonies. Uh, which was involved in alleged arranged marriages, brainwashing, and tax evasion under cultural, political, religious, business, and social organizations. So they would use these businesses to accrue money under names such as, like, the Gloucester Lobster Company. What? And then that money would then go back <laughs> to the church. Uh, these academic conferences tended to be fully paid, international trips to deliver talks on typical sort of mundane academic topics like, quote, the resurgence of Asia and its historical meaning. So that <laughs> professor um, was kind of ratted out by nice this family. Cover. Exactly. So just a little bit of a snippet of uh, some of the maybe not so known uh, activities of student groups. Do we know what happened to Melinda? Melinda uh, was not found in any Oof. of the information that I have. I haven't done a deeper dive into uh, our dear Melinda. Wow. Right. But there's a really great list of sort of active cults at that time in this file. Um, one of them is the Rajneeshis, which is the, the wild, wild country group mm. that was discussed. Hare Krishna's Scientology, of course, is on that list. But hot time for hot cultural. Hot time for cults yeah. well, we, at we, UConn. We did have the Druids on campus. I right. remember that. Not quite That's a cult. That's not a cult. It's a secret society, open. right? Open. Right. Yes. Wow. Well, kids, stay away from the cults. If you can. 
I hope that we don't have any of those going on right now. Great job, Graham. Thank you for that. Where can people find more fun history from you? You do so, a podcast too. Yeah, that's right. So I do a, a podcast through WHUS. Uh, it's called Darshiv. Um, you can find it on whus.org. It's also available on iTunes. Every week uh, I feature sort of a collection-based uh, topic from our archives here uh, on campus or have folks who are in the field or doing research come to talk about the work that they do that, that engages archives. We're always uh, inviting folks to come and check out the archives. We're open to the public um, at the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center from 9 to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. We're on Twitter, Facebook, etc. So uh, come and check us out and you can find all kinds of stuff about cults and president's papers. Awesome. Ken, where can people find you? What do you want to plug this week? Well, I'll be constantly on UConn today. Constantly, as, as, as we all, never as we stopping, are, as most of us are in our in our department. But this, uh, I may be back on the radio. I'm not sure. The summer session is over as of last week when you'll be hearing this. So I don't know whether I'm going to be on WHUS in the fall. Oh. I haven't decided. We'll be waiting with bated we'll breath. See. If not, I might make guest appearances on occasion. The radio will miss you. <laughs> well, we, you've we got him here that. on UConn 360. He doesn't play music though. Uh, since Tom isn't here, I'm going to qu- quote him and say, cuss me direct on Twitter at Julie Bartuka and at Yukon Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to Yukon 360, rate it and review it on whichever app you're listening to. We're basically on all of them at this point. And right now we're this close to the return of our students and so excited for that. So we're going to bring you many more exciting stories as the school year gets underway. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>